0: you <music>
1: brilliant minds and looking at the world around them. How do they 360 themselves and 360 the world? Jamie Neil, the host, asked many questions about their mindset and how they fundamentally operate their world and the world around them. Hello, welcome back to 360 Yourself. I hope you're having a beautiful morning wherever you are. If you're in Devon, if you're in London, New York, LA, wherever it is, um, I'm currently in Devon where it's getting cold now. I don't know about you but uh, I'm going back and forth between uh, London and Devon and it's getting cold and I'm really really much a sunny sunny person I love the sun but also we are coming up to Christmas I don't know if you finished all your Christmas shopping I have done we just had Black, uh, black, black Friday isn't it and um, I don't know about you but Some of the websites just went mental. I think even Debenham's as well, because I think that's closing down soon. People, I think it was hundreds of thousands of people, went on Debenham's site and it crashed um, because everyone just wants to get a nice little sale before Christmas. Um, So I hope you are doing uh, lovely things with your family at the moment because obviously Christmas time is about family, it's about staying in the present moment. And this brings me back to uh, something I was talking to someone recently about waiting for the weekend to be happy you know when people are like waiting um to do something to to like if it's a holiday or you're working Monday Friday that like oh, okay I'm just waiting for that weekend to be really excited for something but actually every day should be exciting every day should be full of joy and happiness and love and I, I, I was talking to someone about the expectation of, of happiness and rather than like waiting for happiness to arrive in your life that you're waiting for the weekend it's in front of you right now it's 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 in your space so don't wait for the weekend don't wait to be happy be happy now find those moments with your friends your family those connections um and moving forward i've got an amazing guest with me i've got um, a brilliant, brilliant brilliant producer um who has worked on uh, one of my favorite uh, productions of Dear Evan Hansen, and also Death of a Salesman. Um, he He's absolutely incredible. I mean, he's a two-time Tony Award and Olivia Award winning and Emmy Award nominated producer. I mean, that's a, quite a mouthful. Um, so I'm very excited to talk to him to see, again, how he works and, and how he sees the world. So I'm very excited to bring on Brian. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. So whereabouts are you talking from today? So I am from, um, I'm talking from my flat in North London right now, um, kind of post-second post lockdown. Uh, just kind of enjoying the fact that we're allowed to go out again for however long that might. My- I
1: know. How did, how did you find the first one and then the second? Because the second one for me didn't really feel like the same as the first one. I felt it was a bit more No, no bit more
2: not easy. at all. I, I feel like the first one was was dreadful on pretty much every level. I really, it it was kind of a a test in mental agility, kind of, because our flat is quite small and we're not near a lot of our friends. A lot of our friends are kind of more South London. So, even kind of those socially distanced walks didn't happen. It was just kind of a test in how how much time you can spend with yourself and your own thoughts without a lot of distraction. The second time around, I feel like because everyone knew it was gonna be a finite period of time, those kind of creative conversations were still really ongoing and everyone kind of just looked at it as a bit of a break as as a more of, as, as opposed to kind of like a stop. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like the first one, because there wasn't really an end in sight at the beginning, people didn't really know how to plan. They didn't really know how to view anything in the world after that lockdown. Whereas with this, I feel like everyone was able to say, okay, well, let's just focus on December through January Mm. and kind of ignore the month of November. Did you, did you, were you productive
1: in the first lockdown as well? Like, even though there was no kind of like sight ahead of you, were you Mm. you still kind of developing things? Were you still, what was you doing?
2: I feel like, I, I was unbelievably unproductive the first month. I feel like it was because that was kind of like the learning curve of, you know, firstly doing everything via via Zoom or working from home, as opposed to kind of having face to face interactions with people. But then I feel like once I kind of got over that three four week hump, then the wheels started turning again, and it's like, okay, this is the new normal. This is how I'm going to think. This is how I'm going to organize my day. This is how. We can kind of organize projects in this manner and then i feel like from month two I, onward through the summer it got a lot easier and we were able to kind of plan kind of projects on a kind of with with a short notice period and say okay so when this gets lifted if we have five week, five to six weeks to make something happen how can we do that mm-hmm. knowing that we probably won't have more lead time than that because you know we we only know what's gonna happen in the future to such a degree at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel, yeah, that first month was dire. Um, but I feel like, like everyone, it's, it's just an adjustment. It's adjusting to this new life that we're all living until kind of this vaccine is widely available, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm really fascinated because you, you've worked on so many shows and so many projects and you've had so many diverse roles uh, within the creative arts. I'm just fascinated how did you start and and how did you navigate through your career uh
2: so i am a project a product of youth theater uh from very very early age drama camp kind of youth theater community theater mm. um but always kind of on the administrative and backstage side of it never really on the acting side like did shows when i was really really young um acted in them but always knew that kind of my interests lied in kind of putting stuff together and whatever that looked like so it was you know a 13 year old me sitting in an office trying to plan a season with like you know with a youth theater or camp director and kind of just see, seeing how how the planning worked and how the casting process worked and how stage management worked and in scenic construction and all of that and it was from learning all of those different elements that i kind of began to put those building blocks of what a producer does together Mm-hmm. And from that point, I kind of knew by, I'd say probably around age 14, 15, that, okay, this is what a producer does. This is what I want to do. But how am I going to actually make that happen? And how, so you can't just jump in and, you know, be a producer. So what does it look like to kind of get the relevant experience and internships and other jobs in the industry that can kind of lead to that point? And for me, it was really Television is a lot more, at least in the states at that time, was a lot more accessible to kind of enter in than theater because there's a much more, uh, much more defined path in terms of you start as a runner and then a production assistant and you work your way up, as opposed to in theater, since there's so there's so many less jobs going, Mm -hmm. it was just harder to break into. Yeah. So I ended up uh, kind of working in television and going to school for television and film, still loving theater and wanting to do that, but saying well, this is going to be a relevant experience. This is going to be good to know. And this, you know, this is actually a paycheck. So mm-hmm. I did that for a while. And then as I started doing more kind of TV and film, I started to get more involved with theater kind of as a secondary job, knowing that I had the income from TV and film to pay rent. Mm-hmm. But then I could kind of try to navigate the theater industry as a passion. Mm-hmm. And... And started uh, trying to cultivate an investor base, raising money for stuff, meeting with other producers, because especially kind of in New York, in New York, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it it was really much more who you knew. There were less programs like there are right now, um, uh, kind of with the Commercial Theater Institute and stuff like that to introduce a new generation of producers and New York is still well behind London in terms of kind of cultivating a new generation of producers and giving them those skills. There's nothing like stage one over there and there should be. Uh, but it was just kind of making those introductions and figuring out, okay, this is how I can make a show happen. And um, then working for other theater producers and just trying to navigate navigate it like that um, until I you know, produced my own work uh, with those producers. I was just working for them trying to absorb as much as I could
1: Mm -hmm. and but I mean the experience that you had in the tv world is it is amazing and and you and you could also potentially cross over later in life and do and Mm -hmm. do both of them at our very I mean Scott Rudin does it so yes so it's it's having that I mean because I've always believed that uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if this is if you agree but the West End is so different to the Broadway in terms of like its connection Absolutely. to TV and film. It's a lot easier to get to TV and film from Broadway. For some random reason, mm. I don't know why.
2: I think that because the stakes are so much higher on Broadway in terms of a show needing to do well because it's so, it's so much more expensive to produce a Broadway show that I think that all eyes are on you. Whereas I feel like there, there are so, there's just more shows in the West End every year. because. because shows don't need to run as long or make as much money to still do well um mm-hmm. which is you know again leads into why tickets are much more accessible in this country than they are on Broadway yeah but i think that because you know broadway and the broadway community because they're spending so much money it's very much more you know kind of stars in their eyes and everything needing to be of a certain level that on broadway i feel like it basically is an hbo show on stage so many of these plays that come in whereas i feel like here where you know where, whereas actually you have a lot more you know writers doing theater to film crossover I feel like when you look at casts over here it's it's nice for an actor in so far as the fact that actually I feel like it's easier for an actor to get a break in the West End than it is on Broadway. Oh um, yeah. if if we're talking about a you know a straight play because you can take a chance on an actor that doesn't you know that hasn't been in three Netflix series but you know might just be an excellent actor. Mm-hmm. Whereas on Broadway, you have investors who aren't going to put their money in a show because, you know, a play is four or five million dollars, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to 600,000 pounds here, uh, unless that person has those credits. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons I moved here. So I feel like, whereas you can make a lot more money on a single project on Broadway, you can make a living doing theater here, or, you know, at least you could when I moved here pre-pandemic, I think... It's, the future you know still has yet to be written,
0: mm. but
2: I, I I think whereas here if there's a great, if there's a great piece of theater that's a great piece of art, there's usually a way to put it on mm. um, in a in a commercial setting. It might not be west End, it might be off west End, it might be off off west and it might be regionally but there, there there are more defined paths for new work, whereas in New York it's so dependent on the title already, which is why you see so many star driven revivals, and who's in it so you know and having you know, produced a lot of those shows, I, I, you know, I'm guilty of this too. It's an, a new piece of work with an unknown cast. I, I couldn't raise money for that on Broadway. Mm. Um, it's, it's, too, it's too difficult. My, my investors are more conservative and won't take those risks. And some people have investors that will, and I am forever jealous that they've been able to find those people because it's awesome. But if you look at the things that have just recouped their investment on Broadway, you know, 99% of those are either a revival of a recognizable title or something that just has a massive star or both.
1: You look at shows like American Utopia and like... Uh, yeah. Which is, I mean, it has like a name to it because obviously the music and then like mm. you got Beetlejuice, yeah. which is no longer there, but obviously yeah. a classic. And then you've got yeah. um, Jagged Little Pill, which is obviously from a very famous musician. Absolutely. So even though they're not... They're not um, massive uh, titles in themselves like like carousel or that sort of yeah the old legit stuff they just haven't weight to them because who's attached to them as uh, from the music point of view
2: or the, from the creative team absolutely people i mean people who are coming outside of new york it's like the way that i always like to think of it is if you're trying to appeal to kind of a tourist market outside the tri-state area in new york if you know a family is coming in from st louis for three nights in new york is kind of like an annual trip and they can see in those three nights they can see two shows but those two shows, you know, that has an average ticket price of ninety pounds a person, or ninety dollars a person, or more. Are they going to risk it on something that they don't know? Yeah. Probably not, because they have they have one shot. Those are their two shows a year. They want to know that when they spend that money, that they're going to like it. And if it's based on an album they've heard that they like the album, there's just that much more of a certainty that they're going to like it. Or if you know,
0: yeah.
2: you know, it's it stars David Byrne and they you know they love Talking Heads. It's just one more thing that they can they can say, oh well. I'm probably going to like this because, Mm -hmm. as opposed to if it's a completely new commodity, if it's not based on a film, if Mm -hmm. it's a show like, you know, a show like Fun Home or something like that, where, yes, it's based on a graphic novel, but not one that the general public knew. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are something like Passing Strange when that was on, something like that, where, you know, brilliant, well-reviewed work, but someone outside that New York bubble isn't going to know anything about it. But then, a tourist but, considers that more of a risk. But then you look at David Hanson, though. Who, that mm. I mean, it's a totally new show. It's totally new yep. music. How did that? How did that get into the public eye? A complete exception to the rule. I, I think it's it's one of those things where I feel like it was so it was so smart to do that um, off Broadway after uh, Washington D.C. before we came to Broadway, mm-hmm. and it was. I, whether whether or not we did that, I think a lot of the producing team was really torn on. Um, but Stacy mitchu who's a lead producer, was was really insistent on it. Uh, for not not because the show needed it from a creative development standpoint. It was there weren't that many changes between Washington D.C. and Second Stage, but because. That enabled us to build a buzz in New York in a safer environment if we had opened cold on Broadway it would have taken longer to find that audience and we probably still would have found them but you know it, it there would have been more of an inherent risk there as opposed to second stage where you know it's a subsidized theater it's off Broadway and we're really able to build that buzz so it came to Broadway with a really good advance and a really good word of mouth mm. but still you know with an unknown show it's it's hard it's uh that just as easily could have could have not gone right. It's, yeah. I mean, and, and as much as as, well. as much as yeah, yeah, and as much as I'd love to have a crystal ball, you never know what the public are going to buy tickets for. You have to put something on stage that you, as a producer, believe in, mm. and that you hope is going to do well. And but
1: but how did you find the days. show? That's my question. How did you find the show to go? You know what? I'm gonna. Did, was it like one of the producers was like, "Hey, I'm doing this show. Do you want to? Do you want to get involved? How How did it happen?
2: So so in the case of David Hanson, it was a commission that Stacey Mindich uh, paid for based on an idea that uh, Benj and Justin had uh, based on someone that they knew uh, from their high school going experiences and or a bunch of different people that they knew from the high school going experiences. And they pitched this idea and she said yes. And she developed it for about a year and a half, two years after that point. And then there was a first workshop, and I had known Stacy from previous shows, but I had actually heard about this workshop from uh, Ben Platt, who's a friend of mine, because he had just been cast in it, and he had said, "You have to come see this." And my other friend Alexis Molnar was in it at the same time, so I'm like, "Oh, I have two friends in this workshop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go see it." And it was it was a very different show at that point. There was a big ensemble that you know is no longer in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was considerably longer, uh, but. It had this, it had this quality. And I think it, it came down to the fact that, yes, the music is brilliant and it's it's a great score, but for me, it was such an interesting, compelling story. And even even that long ago, the book was so well written that I said to myself, I said, this could actually It would be just as interesting if it was a song cycle with no book, and it would be just as interesting if, as if if it were a play with no music. Mm. For for a musical at such an early stage to be so strong in terms of both book and music and telling the story separately, it just made it that much more compelling together. And I feel like it's one of those things where it knew exactly what it wanted to do in terms of the story it wanted to tell, Mm. Um, and it hasn't really deviated from that. I think that it's interesting to, you know, there there are so many shows on on Broadway in the West End and so many new musicals that are just based around, you know, a boy-gets-girl love story that, you know, where, you know, guy makes a mistake, girl leaves, has to do something to win her back, wins her back, everyone's happy in the end. Yeah. And what I loved about Jervin Hansen is that you start to think it's that, and then there are all these complex secondary storylines that kind of go in, and actually, it's not about that. It uses kind of a traditional old musical theater boy-gets-girl device to actually tell a much more complex story. Mm. And then, you know, at the end, where, you know, spoiler alert, he doesn't get the girl, but he learns something about himself. And they both grow as people because of it. I just felt like that was really that was something that doesn't get told a lot. Yeah. And it was a really interesting look into really complex characters. I also love that our lead character is not a good person. He's not innately likable. He's a really, really flawed individual who makes some really, really poor choices. Mm-mm. And that's, that's reflective of the people who are going to be watching this. I mean, I was really just sick of seeing these perfect characters up on stage that just aren't believable as people. It's like, they're, they're, there are a lot of flawed people in that show. Yeah. And I feel like that really just holds a mirror up to our society.
1: Yeah, and, and th- talking about society and culture and, uh, and everything that's happening in the world at the end of... 2019 and also the whole of this year of 2020 with Black Mm Lives Matter and what's actually happening with Covid and what's happening in Turkey and Israel and all Mm -hmm. that. Do you find that the stories are changing and the stories are developing and we're not seeing the same sort of (coughs) stories that we have been writing as composers, as as writers and there's much more kind of political and social happening
2: within the theatre land? yes um and thank god for it i think that it's 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 nice now that i feel like over this past kind of decade especially um really over the past couple years but there's been a really wonderful movement of people feeling that they've people giving themselves permission uh writers giving themselves permission to tell complex stories through music Mm -hmm. whereas i feel like if you look at musicals from a few decades ago that just wasn't the case that's not when musicals were happy you know jazz hands escapism, whereas now, people are really using it as a lens to society. And I feel like people are telling much more human stories and I feel like the line between kind of traditional, you know, straight play dramas and musical theater is getting really blurred in a really cool way. And people are figuring out how to use music to actually uh, to, to tell really sad stories, or really dramatic stories or stories that are really overly per- political. In an accessible way and I feel like that's just it's such a great use of musical theater in 2020 going into 2021. Um, It's just another device because it's like the world is in such a difficult weird place right now and it's another way to express those frustrations and those tensions and open up those really unique conversations. And the fact now that we can have a musical, um, or musicals, many of them, where audiences leave the theater wanting to have, to get a drink and have a really serious conversation about what they've seen. Exactly, is yeah. It's great, it's yeah. great. Because I, I, I ultimately that's what
1: I, I love when I come to the theater and I see, I, I'm, I'm more interested in the, the contemporary theater. I love mm-hmm. things that draw on the political things outside. There was There was a, a play, Oh, it was in, in London, I think it was last year, and it was about the, the election. Or the, it was,
0: I don't remember what it's called
1: mm. now. And it was basically talking about, oh, it was basically two, two people uh, who are politicians talking about this, the state of politics in the US and the UK. And it was, it was the most amazing thing. And, and looking at also, like come from away as well, looking at mm-hmm. history, like I love when they, you could draw, I came away going, oh my God, I didn't know any of this sort of story. And I, and I love yeah. musicals that do that or productions that do that. And also the cross between art, music, fashion and design. And I think that theatre is doing that a lot more now, even with technology that you can utilise sort of AR or lighting or like video projection.
2: theatre. I think that's, that's the stuff that I'm really excited about and I see a lot more of it. Absolutely. I feel like in a really cool way, the line between theater, film, and television is being blurred. And I feel like obviously that could go too much in one direction, but I feel like the way that a lot of people use it now is just really interesting. And I feel like there are a lot of traditionalists who are like, there's too much video in the theater. That's not what, you know, scenic design is supposed to be or whatever, or what are all these moving lights that, you know, that goes away from what theater should be. And I guess I'm of the opinion of Every art form advances as time goes on, and always has throughout history. Theater now isn't what theater was in Shakespeare's day, and theater then wasn't what theater was in Greek and, and like Greek times. It's it, the, the very fact that it's supposed to, theater is supposed to hold a mirror up to society, and as society changes, theater should be changing with it. And I I think that there's a way for that to happen without us losing, you know, the traditions and things that we love about what theater used to be, but mm-hmm. If adding some video in keeps theater relevant and keeps a new generation of theater goers coming into the building, mm. I think let let's keep advancing. Yeah. Why the hell not?
1: I always I've always believed that art should be commenting on what's what's happening in society. And it's Definitely. not theatre and musicals that are an escapism that detracts you, uh, detach you from what's actually happening in the, mm. in the grand scheme of things like forty like second street. For instance, yeah. it's very and glam, and it's lovely. But I love when theatre and when art comments on social and political things that are happening on our in our in our society. That we can we can just see it in another light. Because there's, there's a, like music and poetry and song tell stories in a totally different way to someone speaking talking about a speech. It, it, it yeah. gives you an emotional connection to the story and actually hits home. And I love when theatre and art do that. They comment on things. And I think that's what, I th- that's what I'm what i seeing a lot more as well. Theatre, comment, you see Productions commenting more on what's happening in society. And it's great. And I think there is a place for that. And I also think there's a place for 42nd Street and all these very lovely glitz and glam um, escapism sort of stuff that has sort of no relation to society, but it kind of gives you a happy
2: feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think there'll always be room like that, just just as, you know, with, with films. There are films that are really, you know, hard-hitting historical dramas that, you know, you can see the linear connection between what happened 60 years ago and what's happening now politically that are really relevant. Mm. But there are also, you know, there's also the hangover where you just want to go into the theater and laugh. Yeah. And that's okay. And I feel like there's, there's room for both. And I feel like there should be both because for every show that you see like Oslo, you're probably going to need a show like 42nd Street to kind of balance it out. And 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 that's what there should be. I feel like a, a lot of, what I hope doesn't come out of the pandemic, I should say, is people just doing the shows like 42nd Street because they feel like people will need a lighthearted evening at the theater. I feel like shows like that should exist. Um, I couldn't be more excited for the production of Anything Goes that's going to the Barbican. Um, I think Kathleen Marshall's a genius, and that cast is great. And I'll be, you know, the first person in line to go see that. But I think for everything like that, there should also be a piece that talks about, you know, the NHS or people's mental health during this time, or you know, examines what's what people are going through in the world today. I feel like they're equally important. I agree. I agree. And so.
1: I would like to know what would be your kind of uh, future production. If you, if someone said to you, was giving you a wand and said you can develop anything you wanted, or you could do any show you wanted, what would you do? What would you like to do?
2: Oh God, that's such a good question. I would say I would love to, and I'm going to be really, really annoyingly vague. I would love to do a completely new work by a completely or say a completely new musical by a book writer and composers and lyricists who have maybe done a bit of work, but this would be their big break um, on a subject matter that was poignant enough and relevant enough that it was able to capture the attention of a theater going public and actually be able to commercially sustain in the West End. Um, as easier said than done. Um, I think that it's one of those things that, and uh, my producing partner, Jack Maple, and I are looking at a bunch of commissions right now and seeing if we can find something like that. Um, I think that I I haven't done as much new work as I would have liked, um, especially in terms of musicals. A, a lot of that is because New musicals are really, really expensive, and finding people who are able to write checks to support new work is difficult. Um, especially in the commercial sector, you know, people write a check for new work in the subsidized sector; they get, you know, their tax write off. But in the commercial sector, it's an investment. But I feel like, especially now, in the wake of all that's happening and in this pandemic, we need to be doing all that we can to support new theater artists so they don't leave the industry forever. Um, I think that we'll look back a decade from now, and obviously a lot of people who were part of this industry are now beginning to slowly leave because there's not the work there. Mm-hmm. And I really hope in a decade, we look back and we were able to say, we've done all that we can, mm-hmm. or we did all that we could to save as many of those people as we could and keep them in employment and keep them in the theater. Because otherwise, we're not gonna have any new work yeah and, and, it's, and, it, and, it, the, and the trickle the trickle down effect will continue we're not going to have any new actors we're not going to have any new creatives and we're not going to have any new writing yeah uh because all those people will have left
1: yeah and it's and it's uh, even like now like broadway obviously shut down like in march and potentially not going yeah. back until september next year so you just go that's nearly two
2: years of people not. it's, ne- it's nearly two years and i mean people i think there's the there's the misconception that even your biggest Broadway stars, your, t- your multiple Tony Award winners, will be fine and they'll just continue. And that's not the case. It's No one makes enough money in the theater, with the exception of maybe Nathan Lane, to just take two years off and not do anything. And mm-hmm. while a lot of them are really lucky and have been getting you know, those shows that shoot in New York, like Law & Order SVU or Blue Bloods, um, you know, not everyone, is cast in those TV shows. And I I have a lot of friends who are actors in New York who are really suffering right now, who have had to just completely retrain or go into other industries because they're not gonna be able to survive off of savings until September, and especially in the US, where the government has been doing absolutely nothing to help anyone out. Their $1,000 check, bravo, for this entire period. People, and I, I have friends who have tried to, you know, get unemployment, who have been writing and on hold for days and days and days, with the U.S. government to only have been, you know, kicked off the phone line, um, and, and literally can't get through to file. So it's, it's. What, what do we do about those people? They're not going to be able to hold out long enough to mm. return in September. They'll be doing something else. And I feel like th- there are so many great individuals and you know for-profit organizations that have donated money and set up really, really great funds. Mm. But in term in terms of kind of governmental support, it's. I know everyone is like, oh, you know, the UK should be doing more. This wasn't enough. But I think it's, it's really easy to say when, you know, and yes, yeah, so could have they been doing more? Absolutely. But so much of my time is, you know, looking at the New York lens simultaneously. And I'm there saying, yeah, maybe they could have done more, but look what they have done in comparison with America. Yeah, it's, I mean, inc- it's we're incredible. Way ahead we're way ahead of them. and I, I'll be We're way ahead. And, and yes, maybe we should be further ahead and, and to, to, to a degree, yeah, we, we, we should. Could the UK government be doing more? Sure, but, but they've done so much comparatively. If you look at the kind of two of the biggest theater markets in the world, the United Kingdom and America, it's like it, there's, there's a big difference in what's been done.
1: Yeah, and we're leading now. The West End is, yeah. leading, and usually it's Broadway that's leading the, the, the charge of, of, of musical theatre and theatre, but now
2: it's the West End. Completely. I, I, I completely agree. And it's, if you look at kind of, you know, the Society of London Theatre, UK Theatre versus the Broadway League, yes, with the Broadway League, there is so much more, you know, kind of tape put up that you have to kind of cut through to get to everything. But I, but I think Sultan UK Theatre have been doing a tremendous job and kind of advocating for the industry mm. and doing what can be done in a really, really awful situation. Mm. I, I think it's really, it's commendable. Yeah. Um, and the- there will always be, I know there will always be those people out there who are like, more can be done, more can be done. And, Ooh, and sure, everyone's going yeah. to feel that way, but it's, it's not a job anyone wanted or anyone was prepared to do. Yeah. And I think in navigating uncharted territory, there have been a lot of really wonderful people who have stepped up and done a really great job. Um, a really good friend of mine, uh, Patrick Gracie, who's a West End general manager, has written dozens and dozens and dozens of papers kind of on potential scenarios um, uh, about kind of uh, grants and financial spending and what the, what the industry will look like under scenario A, B, and C. Um, and it's just people like that, he's in these papers have been, you know, have been looked at in the government not just our industry people like that are really doing amazing things and using their skills Mm. in a way that can really further the whole industry and Mm. i think that it's really it's been great to see i really do
1: yeah i mean there can always be something always be more done always i mean but always there's
2: there's always always and there there can always be there can always be more people doing things than there than there have been which will contribute to more. There there have been people who absolutely could have been doing something about this in our industry who have just kind of sat there not doing much. Mm -hmm. But I think the people who have been stepping up and doing and and, and working to try to help this have been doing an absolutely amazing job.
1: I agree. I agree. And just to, just to round up as, as I always do, I like to leave it on um, a note of manifestation or um, uh, things that things that you, they inspire you and so for me it's always going is there a book or quote or phrase or mantra that you kind of live by or you'd like to give back to the audience that would inspire them
2: yes um so i think for for me it's more a way that i look at every project that i do and that is i will not go into any project and not attach myself to any project unless i look at it look at it and say if i were an audience member who is seeing my first show and this were that first show, would it inspire me to see a second? I think that so much of what producers need to be doing is looking at work that will foster a new generation of theater goers. As the theater gets more expensive, um, it will become more cost prohibitive. They need to be looking at shows where they can do outreach to get a new generation in um, and a new audience in that isn't just wealthy middle-class people. Because wealthy middle class people aren't going to tell the most interesting stories. Mm. I want people who thought that they couldn't afford to go to the theater, found a way to go because of a program that a producer put in place for an accessible ticket, Mm. saw a show and was so inspired by that show that maybe they always wanted to write but never had the courage, but saw something, saw someone that they connected with up on that stage and said, screw it. Yeah, I'm going to write my play. That's, that's the kind of work that I want to produce. And with everything that I've done and everything that I'm looking to do with the future, that's, that's kind of the litmus test for me, is does this show have that? And it can be a lighthearted comedy or it can be a serious drama. That doesn't matter. But is there something about that show that multiple people, not just kind of your traditional straight, white, middle-class couple from North London is going to connect with? Is this going to be, if this is going to be someone's first show, what will that experience be for them?
1: I love that. That's really, really nice. I mean, I think th- I th- it's again about being more accessible. And I think as, uh, Jamie Lloyd does a lot of that sort of... Um, yes, he does. He really does. Like five pound tickets. And I, and I think it's amazing that we, we need to do that more for the theatre because it is very expensive. I mean, I'm going to uh, a musical uh, at the end of this month and it's like £95 pound for a ticket. and I'm like, I mean, I can afford it, but like, I don't, I, I don't know that many people who could afford £95 pound for a musical or whatever.
2: Well, exactly. And I think it, there's nothing wrong with shows having a 95-pound ticket. It's nothing wrong with shows having a 120-pound premium seat. Mm. If, if 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 shows need to have some tickets at that price to subsidize the accessible ones, yeah, go for it. Because uh, yeah. inevitably, there will always be those people who want those, you know, fifth-row stall center premium ticket. And that's fine. Let them pay for it. But let them pay for it so there can be, you know five or 10 pound tickets and maybe the seats aren't as great, but they're still good seats with a good view. Mm. So so other people who otherwise couldn't experience theater can be in, can be in the same house enjoying the same art.
1: Yeah, because I remember when I was a student, there was like five pound tickets for the Royal Opera House and I'd go to see the yeah. ballet and I'd be standing at the back, but for five pound and I'd go, I mean, there was like a balcony in front of like the view a bit, but I was going and I, and I, I was a student and I, and I really wanted to see it.
2: Exactly, it's about, it's about being, getting people in the building mm. and you know maybe you know if, if someone buys three of those five pound tickets really falls in love with it those are the people that you know in 20 years when they make enough money to buy a 65 or 70 pound ticket they'll save up and they will because they will have developed an appreciation for the art form and will see the value in that ticket price because they will have experienced it if you don't get them in the building they're not going to know why that ticket's worth more than a cinema ticket
1: Exactly, exactly that. Well, I want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really enchanting to talk to you and also very um, thrilling. i really loved ch- chatting
2: to you and I think you've got some really great thoughts and I know a lot- no,
0: Thank, th- thank you so away. much. It was,
2: yeah. It, it's just so good. It's so good to be able to talk about the industry and the future of the industry in a time like this. It's, it's really, it's comforting. It really is.
1: Good. Well, I know a lot of people come away from this really, really happy and really um, at ease with what potentially the future of theatre will become. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so
2: much, Brian. Thank you so much, Jamie, really appreciate it.
1: This is 360 Yourself and I'm Jamie Neal. Thank you very much for taking a moment to listen to our wonderful guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our brilliant guest episodes. They are released every Sunday at 12 p.m. We are available on all listening platforms, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and Castro. You can also find us on Instagram at 360 underscore yourself, Twitter at yourself360, and our host at JamieNealJN. Thank you for listening.